This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston. I am the host of this podcast. Today I have Ingrid Gold Ellen and Justin Peter Style to discuss their book, The Dream Revisited Contemporary Debates about Housing, Segregation, and Opportunity. Ingrid Gold Ellen is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Urban Policy and Planning at New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and Faculty Director of the NYU Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy. She is the author of Sharing America's Neighborhoods, The Prospects for Stable Racial Integration, and co-editor of How to House the Homeless. And Justin Peter Style is the class of 1942, assistant professor of law and urban planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is the co-editor of Searching for the Just City, Debates in Urban Theory and Practice, 2009. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Michael. Thank you for having us. So we'll start off with maybe discussing how you went about putting this book together, and and really what interested you in uh, housing and segregation, the opportunities that exist in integrating uh, America? So maybe I'll start. um, That uh, The the book actually started, had unusual origins, and then it started as an NYU Furman Center blog that we launched uh, with support from the Open Society Foundations in on MLK Day in uh, 2014, so about a little over five years ago. Um, And our goal was to spur candid and constructive discussion about housing segregation and the stark differences um, that that uh, we were observing in uh, across neighborhoods in in U.S. metropolitan areas. Uh, The governing ideology in this country, of course, is that all children, regardless of where they grow up, should have access to the same set of opportunities. But the reality falls far short of this ideal and, and arguably increasingly so as as income and, and wealth and rise. It means that the gaps in resources between sort of higher income and lower income neighborhoods also grow wider. Um, and, and further, we also thought that we were seeing a, a, widening, a widening ideological divide and kind of a hardening um, of, of, of views and in, in discussions about the nature of these neighborhood disparities and, and how to address them. And, and, and we felt that the, too often the debates that we heard were, were either tired or um, sort of too high level to be really useful for policy. And so our idea was to bring a diverse set of, of very diverse set of voices together to engage in a fresh set of debates that ranged from kind of high-level questions about, you know, to what extent should integration in itself be a goal 
to um, to very specific, concrete policy questions on, that are on the ground right now, um, like how to design and finance mixed income housing and, and what are the best tools to use to help housing voucher holders reach um, a wider array of neighborhoods. And, and so so what we did is that in each, we decided to curate this set of debates. And in each case, we invited someone to write an initial essay on a topic. And then we asked three other people who we thought would bring diverse perspectives and backgrounds to write responses to them. Um, and, and we aimed for um, a, a mix of sort of uh, scholars from different disciplines, from um, sociology, law, political science, economics, urban planning. I'm sure I'm missing some discipline there, but together with um, advocates and, and practitioners. And and we um, were and and continue to be as we look at the book now um, and the, the 100 and 100 contributors um, thrilled at the number of really brilliant people who agreed to to write for um, initially for the blog and then for the the book and and just just in the area of sociology I mean I think this is the list I hope I'm missing so we um, have the you know in, in like beautiful essays from Mary Patillo Camille Charles Rob Sampson Mario Small Pat Sharkey Jackie Huang Sean Reardon uh, Kendra Bischoff Jacob Faber Larry Bobo Monica Bell Stephanie DeLuca um, and again I hope I hope I'm not missing anyone it's a long list. It is a long list, and it, uh, that was one of the uh, things that was so beautiful about it. Yeah, beautiful. I, I will say it was, you know, a little like herding cats sometimes, but um, you know, it was. But we're we're delighted that with the results. So, but Justin, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of our motivation for 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 um, converting the the book and and synthesizing? I mean, the blog into a book. Sure. Um... I think the idea largely was to compile and edit the earlier contributions that people had made to organize them thematically and to unify them with a set of new introductory essays that we wrote to identify key themes, um, especially areas of agreement and disagreement in different aspects of research and policy related to um, housing, residential segregation. And we think that having the 25 discussions together, the, the 100 contributions together in print will be a valuable resource for those who want to learn more about current debates in housing policy, particularly with regard to racial and economic segregation um, and policy responses to that. And in a larger sense, we also hope that readers will not only learn about the substantive issue in the book, but find another forum in which to appreciate how discussions among people who disagree can be both civil and constructive. And so a core premise of the book is that we can learn from listening to and speaking with people with whom we disagree. And um, most of the time, I think we had to encourage people to highlight points of disagreement, as I think most of us, uh, certainly true for me, find easier to identify areas of agreement than disagreement. But um, there are also definitely contributors who passionately disagreed um, which was which was what we were trying to to get because we felt like there was important learning that could come from from that disagreement um, and it was wonderful that all of the contributors definitely respected the other perspectives even when they they disagreed and I think that makes for a, a very um, fruitful and, and interesting reading experience um, so um, we also built a little bit on um, Ingrid taught a seminar a couple of years ago structured around around these debates and we've uh, we thought that, that this could provide a very good starting point for a class um, about uh, issues where it sometimes feels uh, difficult to, to 
bring up a different perspective. Um, but having these diverse set of views, uh, we think can make people feel more comfortable engaging in, in a productive dialogue. Yeah, and I have to say that having taught that, I mean, I, I really felt like I'm not sure I've ever had a class where I've had students engage in such sort of candid and, and um, constructive discussions about about race and um, and and inequality and segregation. Um, and, and I and I think somehow coming into the classroom having having read um, and engaged with a diverse set of views made them more comfortable sort of engaging in a, in a, in a conversation. Um, and, and then the assignment of course was also natural that every week they would write, you know, basically the, the book, um, is structured. So you have one initial position and three responders. And so the students basically, we, um, asked them to write a fourth response. Um, and, uh, and I think that was a, that was a really a terrific exercise for them. Certainly I enjoyed reading them. In the flow of the book, it was almost a natural flow from each uh, section to each uh, discussion piece uh, within each chapter. Uh, I think that was an excellent way of organizing the book. It, it definitely made it easier to read. Uh, that was our hope. That it didn't kind of occur that way when we initially commissioned them, but we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to how to fit them together most most effectively. Um, would it would it be helpful for us to talk some about the structure of the book? Yeah, that would be excellent. And, uh, Maybe that would uh, uh, help us uh, move forward with the interview and discussing each individual piece of the, the book. So I, I guess uh, let's first talk about the structure, uh, the three sections, and, and your intention for that, and then uh, how you decided on, on the discussion topics. So we started out thinking that it would be helpful to group some of the uh, kind of very high-level conversations about what's the meaning of segregation and looking at segregation in comparative perspective together. So... Um, we ask initially, well, what does the shorthand term segregation mean in, in different contexts and why does it continue to matter? And one of the things that I think, um, you know, started to, to strike us was we take for granted often, I think, that when we say segregation in the United States, we're usually referring to separation by race or ethnicity in places of residence or in schools. But um, class segregation on the basis of class um is just as important and um, and growing. Um, and there's, you know, extensive uh, municipal fragmentation by class and tax, tax structures that contribute to um, dramatic neighborhood based inequalities and in access to public goods. But we almost uh, take that for granted in the United States that that's that's the norm. Um, and so. Um, we think that in the context of the widening economic inequality in recent decades, it's driving an increase in income segregation. Um, that's an important aspect um, of, of focusing on, on residential patterns and how they're uh, contributing to making socioeconomic mobility even more elusive. Um, and we also tried as we looked at each of these sections to identify some areas of agreement and disagreement. And so, you know, one of the areas that stood out from the uh, big picture perspective of um, uh, just thinking about what segregation means is the intertwining of residential and educational segregation and how how difficult it is to separate those um, and how important it is to think about policy responses um, that consider both housing and schools simultaneously. Um, and one area of disagreement that um, was actually the very first contribution on, on Martin Luther King Day in 2014 was an initial essay by Mary Patillo um, questioning 
um, whether attention to segregation implies that the appropriate solution is is integration. And so, you know, James Baldwin famously asked, do I really want to be integrated into a burning house uh, in, in his uh, essay, The Fire Next Time? Um, and so um, in the essay, Mary Patillo argues that focusing on integration can sometimes stigmatize um, black people and black space and valorize whiteness. Um, and so that was a really rich starting point uh, with a number of responses um, uh, that engage with that. So Roger Anderson, drawing on some of his analyses of public policy in Sweden, points out that even when programs are designed to invest in particular neighborhoods without promoting integration, that can also further stigmatize a targeted area and also sometimes turn out either to displace problems somewhere else or or be ineffective. Um, and we tried to, as, as Ingrid was saying earlier, have a diversity of contributors. So those that was a sociologist and a geographer. We also were very grateful to have Sherilyn Eiffel, the director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, right in, in response to Mary Patillo, making the argument that racial integration has a value as a goal in and of itself um, and promises benefits for all that, that, from her perspective, don't rest on stigmatizing blackness and are really fundamental to the, the promise of a truly equal, inclusive and multiracial society characterized by greater cross-racial understanding and civic engagement. Um, we also had the historian Richard Rothstein um, argue that racial integration is essentially a, a constitutional imperative um, to redress centuries of public policy enforcing an apartheid state uh, in the United States. Uh, while others, such as the sociologist Patrick Sharkey, argued that regardless of the value that we might place on integration as a goal, segregation reproduces inequality. And so integrative moves are at least one worthwhile path towards greater racial equality. So I, I hope that can give listeners a little bit of a flavor of some of the different um, perspectives that people brought to some of these issues. Another area of disagreement in that uh, section was um, whether we should be concerned about the segregation of advantage or as concerned about the segregation of advantage as we are about the concentration of, of disadvantage. Um, and so Sean Reardon and Kendra Bischoff presented data on the, the growing share of families that live in neighborhoods characterized by either concentrated wealth or concentrated poverty. And they're finding that families in that top 10 percent of the income distribution are actually more segregated from others than families in the bottom 10 percent. And that this concentration of the wealthy um, deserves more attention than it has received so far because it means that the community investments of those higher income households are less likely to spill over to benefit others and may erode support for redistributive social programs. Their, their isolation may erode support. Um, while others asked, you know, if the dispersion of the affluent was actually necessary or sufficient to counter the negative effects, um, for instance, Lee Fennell, the legal scholar, um, asked that. And then also, um, uh, whether we should, you know, given limited resources, um, really focus on uh, negative effects of concentrated poverty, which which have been well documented. And so Michael Lenz, uh, uh, the urban planner, urban planning professor, makes that argument. So hopefully that gives you a sense of some of the debates in the in the first first section. And that was just the first section. <laughs> <laughs> Very rich and, uh, and, and rightfully so. It's a book that I, it was difficult to put down. And, uh, then in terms of, uh, uh, causes of contemporary racial segregation and even part of, uh, that first part, uh, on defining segre defining segregation, 
the discussion uh, focused in on what exactly is segregation. Are we talking about a whole community? Are we talking about neighborhoods? Are we talking about individual uh, housing units? And uh, segregation is all of those, but when understanding them, they each have to be separated uh, for a better definition and uh, a better sense of, of how segregation is occurring. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And and you also might want to think differently about the causes of each of those sort of scales of segregation. Um, but I mean, if if I can just sort of walk, just um, take a minute, just to walk through sort of the rest of the structure of the book for a second, and then maybe we can dig into a few of these. Uh, the, there are really three more sections of the book. So as as Justin talked about, the, the first one is really about sort of the meaning of segregation and how do we think about it in, in different contexts in the U.S. and also around the world. Uh, and the second section, um, we have a set of debates about the, the ongoing causes of, of segregation. Um, and I, we can talk more about that. Um, and the third section of the book is a series of debates about uh, the consequences of segregation on such, you know, outcomes as, as health outcomes, health disparities, um, access to financial services, political discourse. Um, and and then the fourth and the, and the longest section of the book really focuses on, on um, policy responses. And we have, um, as I, as I said at the start, it's sort of our goal was to, curate debates that that involved um, that, that focused both on these big picture issues like the issues that, that we talked about in this first section and also about the causes of segregation um, and the consequences. But then we really wanted to get down and um, and to, to more really more concrete pressing um, contemporary debates that um, it's sort of what what do we do about um, the, the disparities that we see. Um, and so I think we have a, a rich set of debates in that section as well. But, um, you know, we're happy to go through any of those, you know, the, the sort of the areas of agreement and disagreement in, in, in all of those sections and key themes that came out. Excellent. Well, we have a good idea of what segregation is. The, the next stage, I think, is discussing what are some of the consequences of segregation that you found from these uh, authors and then also from uh, your input at the beginning of each of these sections? Uh, I guess, yeah, let's uh, begin with maybe positive and negative consequences that could occur from segregation. It, it almost sounds unnatural for me to say positive consequences, but we discussed uh, valorizing whiteness and how a community can be established and built from uh, racial segregation. Yeah. Um, so in terms of consequences, I mean, there's I, I think this also relates to the first section about the meaning of segregation that, you know, how do we define what integration might be? Does it mean um, kind of an equal distribution of populations across the landscape or is it something uh, more uh, substantive about uh, the you know, people's opportunity to um choose where they want to live um, and what are the what are the kind of choice sets that people are, are faced with what are the constraints on on people's choices um, and so those um, were all questions that that uh, we and the, and the contributors also also get into um, and I think one of the really interesting sets of questions about the consequences are you know 
there is um, research by many of the contributors, by Ingrid and I, and, and our colleague Jorge de la Rosa, um, in which higher levels of area segregation are often a, a negative outcome for individuals. In our, the case of our research in the um, late outcomes and educational outcomes, the, the how do they buy that relationship is we have um, fairly answers. Does it does residential segregation widen disparities because segregation is associated with substantial inequality of amenities, such as the public or private institutions like schools that people can access? Um, or um, is it um, generates inequalities in the care of one's neighbors and uh, access through our neighbors um, is, is, is a fundamental way in which we access employment or education. And so that that's why segregation matters. Or is it something about the kind of particular place-based patterns of social interaction, the norms that um, are established in, in particular places? We don't have um, really definitive answers to why segregation has these um, consequences. And so there's a, a, there's a rich debate um, uh, in that section of the book um, from a number of different perspectives about uh, the relationship between segregation and um, financial services, discriminatory or predatory financial services, or the relationship between segregation and, and health effects, um, and, and also a rich conversation about the structure of metropolitan governance and, and the role of race and class. Um, so those are some of the, the themes that I think get drawn out. And I, I think also the the broader picture of, of what are the consequences of this uh, segregation of our political geography for um, public debate and for, for policy. So Jennifer Hochschild talks about um, this toxic mix of race, place, and, and poverty. Um, and um, Bill Thompson um, talks about the way in which the spatial distance of residential segregation transfers into the social distance of divisive politics and, and therefore the need for, for morally based, multiracial, class based organizing. Um, and, and Larry Vobo writes about the alarm, his alarm at the ways in which empathy appears to be diminishing as economic inequality and economic segregation rises. And all of those authors are concerned about the um, decline, um, the, the risks of this uh, segregation and decline in empathy for democratic politics in a nation that continues to be so segregated. Yeah, and if I can just sort of just draw out one theme, which is that, and I think it actually, it really comes up in the very first discussion, which is the extent to which most of the research on segregation and the costs of segregation, including the work that Justin and I have done with, with Jorge, have, has, has focused on the degree to which segregation widens racial disparities um, in, in various outcomes. Um, but there is also um, a concern, and that Sherilyn Eiffel raises in that very first discussion, um, but that also some of, um, uh, I think that uh, Phil Thompson and, and Larry Bobo and that sort of discussion about the politics, Jennifer Hochschild, um, that that segregation can actually have a corrosive effect on society as a whole. So that segregation is it's not just about about, you know, widening disparities, but it's also detrimental to society as a whole. And it in, in part because it can it 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 sort of heightens and reifies divisions. It it blocks interactions that would be socially and economically productive. It can sustain 
segregation by um, preventing people um, from from interacting with one another. Um, and so I think that I mean, admittedly, we have we have less with we have a um, a weaker research base, I'd say evidence base to 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 prove that segregation, to demonstrate that segregation has those broader um, poses those broader societal costs. Um, Partly because it's just it's it's very very difficult to study that and to identify that effect, but um, but I think there is certainly there's there's good reason to to think that segregation can have those broader and pose those broader societal costs as well. Yes, and then the other thing that often comes up is how do we define what is a consequence of of income slash class and what is actually a racial division? Yeah. That's that. That's certainly true. I, I mean, I think that the, I think there that the research has. Uh, I mean, obviously they're they're they are very they are very tied up in the United States, um, but uh, yeah. So I, I guess it it's it's it really what the research shows is that um, racial segregation uh, does sort of widen disparities in the context of. The United States, where there are already um, racial disparities in, in in income, and perhaps even more pernicious, such such really vast racial disparities in wealth and political power, and etc. These become more salient in urban inner city areas or or large uh, metropolitan areas where population density is much greater than rural areas. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know whether I mean, I, I think that we just don't have as much of a. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we understand as much from a research perspective about sort of the uh, about what what sort of neighborhood and, and context means in, in, in rural areas. Excellent. And uh, moving forward, I, I guess implications of uh, of this and uh, some potential policies that could uh, assist in. And integrated populations. Um, one of the authors mentioned, actually, was brought up several times: uh, voucher systems, and uh, and then even this uh, misnomer of individualism. And the reason that people are are poor is because of their own lack of effort and and hard work. How do we get past that? So, I mean, you know, I, I think that um, yeah, I'm not sure that anyone anyone sort of explicitly makes that makes that claim in the book. I, I, I think there certainly are disagreements about how actively and extensively government should intervene in the market to foster integration um, and, you know, whether the de- government should be developing policies that explicitly aim to encourage integration or should it simply sort of enforce anti-discrimination laws? And and then and how broadly should they uh, should the government interpret discrimination? Should that be really focus on um, should the government focus on combating intentional acts of discriminations or also policies that have the unintended consequence of exacerbating segregation or denying access to housing in neighborhoods on the basis of of race? And and I think um, you know I, I think those are disagreements that come through in the book and generally sort of pit those with a more sort of libertarian bent um, against those um, supporting more interventionist policies. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, and, and to some extent that that disagreement is rooted in, in 
different beliefs about the value of economic and, and racial integration and how much society should be willing to privilege the goal of integration above other goals. Um, so I, I sort of put, I think that that's, uh, you know, definitely one sort of theme that, that comes through in these, these debates, at least implicitly. But, but I think then there's a, sort of a separate question about vouchers, because I think there are, um, you know, there are a, a lot of, um, you know, I think there's a lot of, of good work about the, the potential of, of housing vouchers to, to help households reach a broader array of neighborhoods. Um, you know, I think the best research that we have on the value of and the, the importance, I should say, of, of neighborhood environment and context and resources in shaping children's long-term chances is, is research from the moving to opportunity demonstration, right? Which I think probably listeners know, right? Was a, was a HUD demonstration in the early 1990s that, that randomly assigned um, families living in, in very high poverty public housing developments to, to one of three groups, one that, one group that received housing vouchers that they, they were required to use um, together with this search assistance that they were required to use in low poverty neighborhoods. Another group that simply got a conventional housing voucher, which they could use anywhere, but they didn't receive any um, any uh, search assistance or counseling. And then a third group that that um, just remained in, in public housing. Um, and uh, and the, you know and the, and the Raj Chetty and his colleagues have shown that the children who were given the Particularly given the vouchers to, that were, um, that they were required to use in, in low poverty neighborhoods, you know, 10, 15, 15 years later, um, were much more likely to have graduated, attended and graduated college, uh, you know, had enjoyed much, were much more likely to be employed, enjoyed higher earnings. Um, and, and the families and the, and the children whose families just received the conventional vouchers, did also did somewhat better than the kids who were who were um, just restricted to well they weren't restricted but they they weren't given additional vouchers so they generally stayed in in public housing um, so you know I think there's a lot of um, I think we have strong evidence about the potential of housing vouchers to open up choices a broader set of choices but the the reality is is that the um, you know most most housing choice voucher holders, although sort of on paper, they are families are allowed to move anywhere with their voucher. I mean, as long as they find units, there is sort of a rent cap. Um, but in reality, uh, housing choice voucher holders tend to stay in in very high poverty neighborhoods. Um, and so there there are a set of debates in the book about um, there, there are two in particular that focus on on what what are the best ways to help uh, families with children in particular reach uh, who, who receive vouchers reach a broader set of neighborhoods. Um, and I'm happy to talk about those in particular, but maybe I should pause there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
Yeah, I think that it would be important to get a little bit into uh, decision making and helping um, helping families use the vouchers to the best of their benefit and their children's benefits. So I think the key, I mean, I'd say there are, I mean, there there are a number of of different tools that um, that uh, people that housing authorities, frankly, are now trying, and um, and one is just you know sort of to provide uh, counseling search assistance to to um, to families. Um, another is simply to provide information. I mean, often. Um, Voucher holders are, are sort of unintentionally, I would say, sort of steered towards uh, neighborhoods that are that are very high poverty because they're they're given a list of landlords that that like to take vouchers and and the landlords that 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 tend to want to take vouchers are those that are operating in lower rent environments. Um, uh, there's also you know social networks that's gonna you know that are um, and and just given that all of us when we when we look at, uh, at, at at you know sort of decide where to live we tend to have um, you know pretty um, narrow horizons and and we tend to move to neighborhoods that are that are very nearby to ones that we live it's it's also true that voucher holders face um, very, very high rates of discrimination, and uh, and there's some some new studies coming out now that have um, that have shown just um, that really, really uh, troublingly high um, rates of of um, of refusal on the part of landlords to to house voucher holders um, in many. Uh, well, in some, I should say, in some states and in some jurisdictions, that is now um, illegal. There. Um, but it is still true that uh, even in those jurisdictions, um, many voucher holders have a difficult time finding landlords who are willing to to rent to them. Um, so I think there are, um, you know, I think that there are there are jurisdictions and a lot of advocates that are pushing for laws that that do ban um, source of income discrimination, meaning that landlords are can't uh, refuse to serve a, a house of voucher holder just because of the they're they're using a voucher to help pay for their rent. Um, they are again pushing. They're um, offering additional counseling. There are um, uh, there are there's a a new um, rule from HUD that that requires that the housing authorities in Justin is it 24 metropolitan areas? I think that's right. Yes. Around the country are, are now required to use small area FMRs, which basically set the rent cap at the um, set that. Uh, Tie the, the level of rent subsidy to the to the rent levels in the zip code in a smaller area rather than in the in the broader metropolitan area because basically as is sort of traditionally the the voucher rents were set at sort of the, roughly the 40 40th percentile of rents within a metropolitan area and that means that basically voucher holders work you know could could rent units that rented below that 40th percentile cap which tend and those units tended to be concentrated in the in the higher poverty neighborhoods so so all I mean I think that there is um, I think you know we have there's there's ongoing research um, testing a bunch of these strategies that I think we're going to learn a lot more um, I, I think that the 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 debate I have to say sort of one of the one of the interesting debates in the in the book um, was to, to Advocates Barbara Sard and Phil Tegler make, I think, a really strong case um, for uh, why it is that we should be, um, you know, 
reforming the voucher program to ensure that families, especially families with young children, can reach a broader array of neighborhoods. Uh, and they and they offer a bunch of concrete policy solutions. But then two, mm-hmm. we had two practitioners um, respond to them, who one of whom currently runs a housing authority, um, Steve Norman, and and then Sandy Enriquez, who had who had run the Boston Housing Authority. Um, and both of them sort of cautioned that these these are all great ideas, but they cost resources, and that in a world of of limited resources, we should be um, careful that they worried that if we spend that spending more money per voucher holders means that we can house fewer voucher holders, and um, in a world where already only one in four income eligible households around the United States actually receives a federal housing subsidy, that that's troubling. So it's a trade-off. And then a goal of eventually integrating neighborhoods will allow for uh, greater overall uh, individual income and wealth over time, which will put people and families in better situations for future years to come. Right. That's, that's the hope. Yeah, go ahead. One of, one of the debates in the book that you know we don't propose to answer is, um, uh, you know, whether the goal is is integration, whether the goal is truly equal access to opportunity. Um, but I think that there is um, broad consensus that the um, choices that lower income households often face about where they can live are, are very limited. And so um, I think especially for the voucher conversation, you know, I don't think um, there's there's anyone proposing to require anyone to move anywhere. But but how can we make sure that households really have a, a full set of choices before them and are empowered to to choose the neighborhood that they feel best meets meets their family's needs um, and, and hopefully sets their family up for for the future that they they hope for themselves and for their children. And when I think of voucher systems, I often think of vouchers being given to families that uh, are living in residential areas that are being uh, torn down and then and then gentrified. So where does gentrification come into this conversation? So um, you know, gentrification is is definitely it's a it's a tricky issue. We save it for I think the the very end of the end of the book. Um, and uh, and you know and I think increasingly. Um, you know, the, the, the policy debates on segregation, sort of gentrification increasingly comes up and, and, and some, you know, welcome gentrification as a, as a potential pathway to creating integrated communities. And surely kind of in the short run, the movement of higher income households into lower income neighborhoods is going to foster economic integration. Um, and gentrification potentially foster racial integration too, as it, you know, often involves white households moving into largely minority neighborhoods, at least, at least really that's really only since 2000. And I don't want to say that's all of gentrification, um, but, um, but it is, that is happening more often. Um, but, um, but, uh, you know, obviously many worry that gentrification is going to displace um, long-term residents and, and ultimately undermine um, integration over the longer term. And, and therefore I think cities are, um, I, you know, I, I think that's an empirical question that um, we don't we don't have we don't have the history yet to know whether sort of the gentrification 
that is happening post-2000 is going to lead to stable economic and racial integration over the longer term or whether it's going to lead to resegregation. Um, but certainly there is, um, there is, there is cities are under increasing pressure to adopt policies to, to protect households and, and families against, against displacement. Um, and we have, uh, um, two debates. I mean, one of, um, one way that, um, Cities, a few cities have responded to gentrification is to adopt community preferences for applicants to, to subsidize housing or basically that gives it means giving neighborhood residents a priority for admission to the uh, available the subsidized housing that's that's uh, newly built in their community. Um, and and this is this is a, this is a controversial policy, perhaps especially so in New York City where it's there's pending litigation, and and I think it's the focus of one of the more interesting and and certainly um, one of the more um, one of the dis- debates in the book where there's one of the it's sort of the clearest disagreement um, and the strongest disagreement um, and uh, former the former uh, New York City Housing Commissioner. Um, uh, Rafael Sestero holds up the practice of community preferences in New York, which basically in New York City, whenever a new subsidized housing development is built, uh, the city requires that developers give preference to local residents for half of the half of the spots in the in that um, in that new development, half of the apartments and homes. And um, and so he he holds up that practice as as a practice as a strategy to protect against displacement in gentrifying neighborhoods and to help long term residents stay in place. Um, but um, Errol Lewis, um, who is a journalist and on, uh, on New York One, uh, a host of, of um, a New York news show, and um, Robert Schwem, who's a, a fair housing scholar, um, point out that, that, that community preferences can perpetuate segregation because what's going to happen is that black families will inevitably be given preference, for instance, in units built in predominantly black neighborhoods. White families will inevitably be given preference for units built in predominantly white neighborhoods. And and so, so you know, while proponents of community preferences like Rafael Sestero argue that they help to maintain the fabric of a neighborhood, Errol Lewis and Bob Schwem are saying that if integration is to happen, you know, neighborhood fabric can't can't be preserved whole cloth at the end, you know, and so um, that we need to sort of break down some of the some of the uh, the, the fabric of neighborhoods if if we want to um, prioritize integration. So so I, I think that this is um, you know at the end of the day, it's sort of one of the disagreements is sort of how much we should be privileging neighbor neighborhood stability. Um, but uh, so I think that's um, you know that that's an example of the kind of I think tricky contemporary um, issue that, that sort of people on the ground are really struggling with, um, uh, and uh, and and well-intentioned um, people have, are coming out on different sides of of that issue. If I could just add, as as we were talking before about the choices um, low-income households uh, may have in terms of neighborhoods, that's often framed as choices to move uh, to new neighborhoods that have lower poverty rates or higher performing schools. But I think it's just as important the choice for households to be able to remain in, in the neighborhoods that they currently live in um, 
if that's where they want to be and, and especially in the context of gentrification um, as that neighborhood um, is changing that can be a really um, um, fortuitous location where people can maintain their social networks and and access economic and other benefits as, as the neighborhood changes but that's often not priorita- prioritized as as a choice um, yeah, I mean, I'd say the only thing I'd add to that, Justin, is that I do think that in some ways, sometimes our policies and 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 approaches to gentrification, I think, focus very much on keeping households in place who are long-term residents. Mm-hmm. But if we really, if we if we want to promote integration in those neighborhoods over the longer term. Um, Lance Freeman argues in, a, in the, I think, the second to last uh, debate in the book that we we have to focus not just on ensuring that people can stay, but ensuring that a diversity of of households can t- can continue to move into that neighborhood. And what that requires is likely investments in place-based subsidized housing. Um, and and in that case, you know. Vouchers, he argues, vouchers sort of won't be enough in that case. That that we really, if we really care about locking in diversity, then then we need place-based subsidized housing to anchor those neighborhoods and and ensure that even as as they feel the pressures of gentrification, that they can continue to to be economically diverse. So again, if if we just focus on on helping families in gentrifying neighborhoods stay in place. We're going to win the battle, perhaps, um, but we're going to lose the war of if if we care about. And then when we also think about the way in which we fund our education system through property uh, taxes, as well as uh, distribution of education funds based on uh, test scores, it, it makes it difficult to improve the education provided in some of these uh, poor neighborhoods. That's definitely a a topic that that gets addressed. There's a, a, um, one of the conversations is about, uh, Ferguson and the events that took place in Ferguson, the killing of Michael Brown, um, and situating that in the context of metropolitan fragmentation and the tremendous number of, uh, different, uh, local governments within the St. Louis region that are highly segregated by race and by class, as well as fragmentation of school systems. Um, and how all of that uh, was part of the the context that um, that often makes our metropolitan areas so um, so unequal and and perpetuates that in space uh, over over generations. Yeah, and that actually just I mean if I can just take that back to actually a question that you asked early on about sort of the, the scale of integration. It's sort of at what level should we be measuring segregation or integration? And I, and I think that's something that, that is, a, you know, sort of a disagreement that also kind of comes through the, the book is that it's sort of to what extent to the extent, to what extent to which the extent to which the benefits of, of integration depend on the scale at which it occurs and, and should we be aiming for integration at the level of building or at the level of the neighborhood or at the level of the jurisdiction? Well, if, um, and I think um, Carol Lamberg makes the case that in, in her contribution to the book that economic integration is most essential at the jurisdictional level really because of these issues of access to services 
um, and and making sure that um, you know that children have access to the same school systems, right? Um, and and while Mark Joseph, um, I think you know, focuses much more highlights of uh, the promise of mixed income buildings of really having people live in the same um, in the same more Im- immediate environments as a way to 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 achieve sort of a truly integrated society. Then that also leads even to uh, the the services one receives, the uh, sense of security by police rather than a, a distrust that exists between um, some poor black neighborhoods, uh, urban neighborhoods, and the uh, the police and, and equal policing for uh, for all people. Yes, there's a there's a conversation about um, policing that's that's interesting because it talks about the two ways in which. Um, causality could potentially run in the sense that um, there's some arguments that um, uh, racial and economic segregation contribute to very unequal approaches to uh, policing. Um, but then there's also an argument that a, that a, um, unequal or a perception of um, uh, overly harsh or discriminatory policing can also perpetuate segregation in and of itself. Um, and there's a, a discussion about um, stop and frisk um, and who's harmed by that um, and what are some other potential approaches to um, uh, thinking about police community relations in, in segregated metro areas. Yes, and uh, throughout the book, there, there are continued conversations about a variety of different uh, subtopics from health to policing to politics within these neighborhoods and uh, how it's viewed for these intermixed house uh, intermixed buildings where um, business may be done but then also housing people above the uh, building when one of the articles uh, it was mentioned that certainly these house these residential uh, places are are being created but then having separate doors where the uh, people enter uh, and uh, whether that's truly creating equality and opportunity for an integrated neighborhood uh, or if it's still segregated at the individual level because of the separate door that other people have to go through just to uh, get to their house, whether there's still a a sense of segregation taking place there. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, yeah, that's another of the interesting debates. I mean, I mean, I think that, that, you know, I think everybody uh, finds that sort of inherently jarring and, and, um, well, I mean, I won't go into it, but there, I think that sort of the way that that, you know, the, the sort of poor door debate was framed in New York was a little bit uh, exaggerated. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, I think that um, that you could argue that, um, you know, again, if you think about it, 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 it really gets back to this scale issue, right? If you think that what really matters is that children have access to the same, you know, streets with the same level of safety and schools with the same level of resources, then I'm not sure you'd care as much if they're living next door to one another, right, in in, um, two different buildings and maybe one has a fancier lobby and one is, you know, has granite countertops and, and one is, is, uh, is far more modest. Um, and, uh, versus, um, you know, whether we really 
need to have people living in in the same building again to really sort of achieve that kind of interracial um, connection and and interaction that will ultimately erode prejudice and and increase cross-racial understanding over the longer term. So I, I think it really it, it depends a lot on sort of what you think sort of the goal of of integration is. And um, and so I, I think that that's that debate kind of again it was about a very specific policy issue about sort of how to design mixed income housing and finance it but but i think it it really touches on those those broader questions about um why we really uh why we really should care about integration and then you briefly touched on the uh busing debate in, uh, in one of the articles you selected but uh um maybe that's something that could be further explored in the in the future and how uh how long rides to uh, to school and then only to come back to a, a segregated neighborhood and the impact that that has on the quality of uh, quality of education the children receive. Uh, I don't know that charter schools are even the answer, but there is no one clean answer. And I think that's uh, one of the things that were, was really brought out uh, in this book. Well, and I think it also really raises the question of if integration is the goal, who bears the the burden of integration? Um, you know, is it is it lower income students of color who are uh, traveling long distances uh, before and after school um, to to achieve integration or, or is it um, investing in new uh, high quality schools in urban areas that are attracting um, higher income students who may then have the, the longer the longer commute. Um, but that's just one example. But I think that's a question that always um, has to be at the forefront of all of these conversations of in the process of trying to achieve greater integration or, or maybe uh, greater reducing racial disparities in, in access to place based opportunities, who's being burdened by whatever policy uh, proposal? And, and is that burden uh, perhaps unwittingly um, further? Um, further widening disparities and, and imposing new burdens on mm-hmm. on uh, lower income households and particularly lower income households of color. Excellent. Is the uh, blog still alive and well for this uh, this book? Could somebody go to it and uh, contribute to the blog or or read some of the old uh, blog posts still today? Yeah. Well. They they can't contribute, so it's not an it's not an open blog. Um, we curate it um, in part because sadly I, I think we just we were we were a little uncomfortable about what kinds of responses we were going to get um, for a blog that was focusing on on uh, on race and and uh, and racial and, and um, economic segregation. But but the blog because is very much alive and well. Particularly because the blog Sorry. was started at the time of. Um uh, the firm really furthering fair housing rule that the Obama administration proposed, which the, the comments uh, on on that rule were overwhelming and, and often not very productive. The, the kind of negative response to a focus on on racial equality. Uh, just I just wanted to add that. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. It's absolutely right. They were really ugly. So so. But that being said. The debate that the blog is is alive and well, and you can read the first 25. And I'm and I'm really excited to um, announce that we actually have we have a 26 debate that we just launched. We sort of relaunched the the blog on the um, as the book has been published, um, and we have a really interesting debate. I think about 
the issue of, of who should decide um, uh, about um, who should who should have um, uh, the the power to decide local, local land use decisions, whether that should be those decisions should be made at a neighborhood level, whether they should be made at a city level or whether they should be made sort of at a broad state level. Um, and uh, this has sort of clear implications for for segregation. It's sort of it's a it's a it's a raging debate in many uh in many cities across the country, as more and more communities are calling for more local control, and but there are others who are who worry that that kind of local control could actually um, perpetuate perpetuate segregation and and sort of um, and allow for more nimbyism. And I will post the the link to the blog on the on the excerpt that I will put lo- along with this podcast episode so that viewers can uh, go to the blog and, and stay updated on on the discussion about uh, contemporary debates about housing and segregation and and land use and who makes those decisions, as, as you just said, the new, newest discussion added to the blog. Great. And we would love to hear from anybody if they have ideas for um, for new topics for discussion. Well, we are out of time. However, I have one last question. Uh, Ingrid, what are you working on now? Um, well, I, uh, I'm working on, I'm doing um, a fair number of a few research projects studying how access to um, high quality, uh, affordable homes um, affects children's well-being and, and, uh, and long run outcomes. So I've got a number of projects there. I'm also doing um, some work on the causes and consequences of gentrification, but I'm not sure I want to go down that rabbit hole right now. So we, we can have another another blog, um, another podcast um, to talk about that. And Justin, what are you working on? Um, I'm doing some work about the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule that HUD passed in 2015 and the current administration suspended in 2018. Um and also some work on environmental justice, particularly around post-disaster housing policy and uh, trying to finish a book about local government responses to immigration. And again, thank you, Justin and Ingrid, for joining me today on this episode of New Books in Sociology. Uh, this has been an, uh, an episode of New Books in Sociology, and we look forward to seeing our audience again in the, in the near future. Great. Thank Thanks you for so having much. us.